Welcome to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Welcome to my happy place, my podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Number 55, departing, arriving, and all the movement in between. I was going to call this one travel, but it didn't feel quite right. I have always focused on the three specific elements of travel, the departure, the arrival, and the movement in between. Think about this. What do you prefer, arriving or Departing. They are the two solid bookends that ensure a journey doesn't fall down. I've never been able to choose a favorite. An arrival presupposes a departure. You can't have one without the other. It starts with picking up a bag or a suitcase and leaving a building. It ends with putting the bag down in a new place. Whereas an arrival presupposes a departure, a departure can also be quite uninterested in a final destination. You leave. No idea where you're going. You just head out, to escape something, to explore something, to just get away. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, says the Asian proverb. It doesn't state a destination. A train leaving is, for me, the most aesthetic start. A lurch, a machine is underway. You invariably glance out the window to confirm that you are, in fact, moving. It's kind of like a plane pushing back from the gate. In those moments, you forget all about your destination. It's all about the journey beginning, the movement in between. But more often than not, a departure means that there will be an arrival. And think about the grandiosity of a departure, simply because there are so many practical issues to tackle in order to make it happen. Planning and researching where to go on holiday, making important choices, booking accommodation and tickets, the act of investing your hard-earned money in the event. Deep breath. Type in your card number, expiry date, hover the mouse over the confirm button, click. That's where the expectation starts, whether you're leaving in four months or tomorrow afternoon. The date approaches. More practical things need to be taken care of. Is your passport valid? Do you need shots? How do you get from the hotel or Airbnb from the airport or the train station? Checked baggage or carry-on? Carry-on means you can't bring wine back with you. Okay, damn. Wait, rethink. Earlier this year, 2021, it was a nightmare to research COVID restrictions in each country I went to in Europe. The landscape was molten lava, ever-changing, hot and cooled, a logistical nightmare, but all part of the departure. And then you have to pack. The more you travel, the more routine it becomes, but you still have to plan. Weekend trip, a week, three weeks, backpacking around the world, different climate, it's all so different. So many variables. I always experience a sense of satisfaction at an airport on a summer holiday seeing my medium-sized suitcase next to a mountain of luggage of someone going to the same place for the same amount of time. I'm not at all poking fun. I just pride myself on my space management and my sense of logistics through extensive travel experience. Whatever job that other person does, they'll be better at it than me. And I'll look a bit stupid when I try to do something that they find routine. 
but I'm still glad I don't have to carry that mountain of luggage. So, yeah, I have a system. It's easy to pack, but I still get a bit stressed about forgetting something. On my way out the door, I do a last check. Every single time. Wallet, phone, charger, passport. Physically touching them before departing. I have a go bag ready at all times in my bedroom. Just calling it that makes me feel like I'm a spy or something. So I am totally going to call it that. Duh. It's my carry-on bag, with enough space to accommodate clothes for a four-day trip if necessary. Passport in the pocket, loaded with extra chargers and cables. I also have two toiletry go bags, one for short trips with small bottles under 100 milliliters and another for longer trips, with more supplies for eventualities, stocked and ready to go. As we know from this podcast, I'm not a man who wants to own anything, and I try to keep my number of possessions on a low level. But I have a thing for sunglasses. More on that in a later episode. And in periods, I spend a great deal of time thinking about luggage. I have never found the perfect carry-on bag. But I've been close a couple of times, including the one I use at the moment. I bought it just before the pandemic started. And it just sat there in the living room like a puppy that isn't allowed to go out and play. Okay, I really, really don't like anthropomorphizing objects. Like people giving their bike a name, attributing human or even animal traits to inanimate things. I find it kind of weird. Back in 1993, I wrote an article in praise of my backpack. When I departed as a young man on a journey that had no fixed destination, I made one wise decision. I bought a quality backpack. For years, my life was a blur of arrivals and departures, greetings and farewells to friends, loves, and places. Through it all, a quiet and faithful companion had stood by my side, content at its unchanging position within my world of movement, a sturdy passepartout that had maintained depth and order in my life on the road. I was in a temporary place, as ever back then, and the time had come for me to move on, as it always did. On a cold, clear autumn morning, I sat down to pack my things. They were scattered around the room, looking lost and alien on the floor of my rented flat. I took time to organize them before placing them one by one into my tired, worn, burgundy backpack. Before I had everything inside, it was already bulging, unwilling to take all of those things comfortably within its fraying walls. The teeth of the zippers like the teeth of a street fighter after his last back alley scrap. Not many people realize the importance of anticipating your needs on the road and finding the appropriate luggage to complement them. It's an emotional choice as much as it's practical. You're going to spend months or years together. Size, color, style all play equal and integral roles, not unlike choosing a puppy. Oops, I did that again. I had chosen a nondescript backpack, shunning the glossy brands. It was a backpack, but the straps could be zipped away so it looked like a soft suitcase. Sometimes when you're backpacking, you don't want to look like a backpacker. Now it was worn and tired. I couldn't help romanticizing about it. That bag had seen all I had seen in the world up to that point. We moved quickly and lightly through airports, train stations, and down the aisles of buses. It had been a pillow when sleepy, a punching bag when angry, and, once, in Uzbekistan, a defensive weapon. Rarely had I existed in the world of movement up to that point without that bag. I knew its lines, its pockets. I could stick a hand in and find whatever I needed in a flash. But I needed a new bag. I shopped around for fancy brands, but, you know, it just didn't feel right. 
By chance, I wandered into an army surplus store and found a standard Canadian army issue duffel bag, sturdy and nondescript, tried and tested by soldiers. Fifteen bucks. It felt right. All of my stuff fit in it perfectly. And the new bag made a trip a necessity. The first international crossing would be like a bottle of champagne cracked on the bow. It ended up serving me well. But choosing luggage is a key element. Cheap suitcases? Oh, don't even go there. When the wheel breaks far from home, you'll pay the price for trying to save money. Been there, done that, believe me. So yeah, departing on a journey has a buildup, a sense of excitement. There are things to do in order to get ready. And let's not forget other kinds of departures. Leaving to head home, either reluctantly at the end of an awesome holiday or just looking forward to sleeping in your own damn bed. Waking up hungover and just throwing your shit in the suitcase and hoping it'll squeeze shut. Or just wanting to depart, but your transport isn't until the evening and you can't be bothered to explore any more of the city, but you've checked out of the hotel already and or you're out of money. The long, dragged-out departure. Then there's leaving one foreign place for another. You arrived, explored, and enjoyed, but now another place awaits. Surfing the perfectly curling departure waves. A cocktail of sad to leave and glad to go. One of my favorite quotes about departures is this by William Gaddis. Trains do not depart. They set out and move at a pace to enhance the landscape and aggrandize the land they traverse. Forget all about departing. Let's set out. Let's aggrandize. Now let's dissect the art of arriving, assuming, of course, that there is a defined destination. Arriving is a job well done, a sign that you survived the journey. You set a goal, and you accomplished it. You made it. But like departures, there are nuances. You can arrive somewhere new, a place to explore. The planning and logistics of the departure continue even though you're there what sights to see, where to eat. An arrival can be a purgatory. The arrival continues. You can arrive somewhere familiar, a hotel you frequent, or a friend's home. That satisfying sense of belonging in a foreign place. Warm smiles and kind words. Oh, come on, wait a sec. Listen, I'm writing this script on my phone today. And I landed in Paris. Now I'm writing at a wine bar, having one glass before I head back to the hotel. The server just came up to me and said, hey, same as last time? And I'm like, dude, that was two weeks ago. I was here only once. But he remembered, and that made my arrival complete. I dig the karma that I often experience when making this rambling podcast. Okay, back to arrivals. You can also arrive home, the most comfortable place in your life a place that you have had a hand in designing. How satisfying is it to arrive in a place where you don't have to look in order to find the light switch? That feeling of your hand deftly sliding along the wall and click, there is light. Reaching for the fridge door handle in the dark, wham, nailed it. In a hotel room, you often have to figure out the light switches, the taps, the shower, the curtains. That's okay too. It's part of the ritual of arrival. One of my teachers at film school posed a question one day. He was speaking about how to write real characters doing real things and ranted on about how, in films, characters arrive in, for example, hotel rooms and do unnatural things. He asked us simply, 
What three things do people do when entering a new hotel room for the very first time? Only three. The very first things. Here is a 10-second musical interlude while you think about it. You can also just pause the podcast if you want to check into a hotel and test it yourself. I like dedicated listeners. I've asked people this question for many years. Some jump right past the point. We unpack. No, you don't do that in the first five minutes in a new hotel room. You explore. The three things? You check the bathroom. You test the bed. You look out the window. You familiarize yourself with the space. An arrival in a new place offers up all the sensory experiences. Sights and sounds and smells. Restaurants fill the air with foreign food aromas. People pass by speaking another language. In the developing world, the sickly sweet smell of diesel is, for me, as much a sign of welcome arrival as it is disgust. You can also drag out an arrival. My first wife and I were married in Las Vegas. Leading up to that was a five-week tacky tourism tour of America. We rented a sports car, and starting in New York and Times Square, we visited Washington, D.C., the Jack Daniels Distillery, the Dallas Ranch, the Grand Canyon, and many other smaller, quirky places. Before arriving in Vegas to stay at a cheesy motel on the Strip, get matching tattoos, getting married at the Little White Chapel, seeing a Las Vegas show, drawing out the arrival, milking it, a honeymoon before the fact. We also visited Graceland. And for the last 100 miles, we played Paul Simon's Graceland on a cassette over and over and over again, singing it at the top of our lungs. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. Damn, that was cool. Almost cooler than Graceland itself. A long musical arrival. I think I lean towards the departure more than the arrival. A journey begins, a chapter as yet unwritten. There are so many unknowns, even if it's just a couple of hours of travel to do a keynote at a conference before returning home. Let me set out. Aggrandize. But with all that said, full disclosure, I am all about the journey. Looking back in my huge pile of journals, I mostly write about the movement in between places more than the destination and all the things I planned on doing there. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote this. For my part, I travel not to go anywhere, but to go. I travel for travel's sake. The great affair is to move. I hear you, Robbie, and I dig it. In the episode where I talk about crossing borders, it's all about the journey. There are departures and arrivals across a border and with a passport stamp, but it's still the journey. I remember driving to Vancouver for the weekend many times when I was a teenager. Eleven hours each way. I have no recollection of what me and my friends might have done in Vancouver. I remember the trips, the highways, the mountains, the music on our cassettes. When I went to theater school in Los Angeles, my friend and roommate Lawrence and I would drive twelve hours each way to Albuquerque, New Mexico, to his mom's house, to get decent food and to wash our clothes playing cat and mouse with bored truckers in the desert, listening to the radio, talking. I remember bits and pieces of Albuquerque, 
dusty streets. I remember his wonderful, wonderful mother. But it was the journey. With my friend. The road. The gas stations. The desert night sky. I think that there have been two or three pivotal crossroads in my life where I had poignant choices to make, and I needed time to figure out which damn road I should take. One of them involved driving from Boston to Vancouver via Omaha, of all places. Oh, wait. I just remembered I wrote a poem about this back in 1993. Oh, fuck. Now you're going to have to listen to the poetic ramblings of a young man. Here we go. I called it The Cross. And I'm on that road, feeling freedom in the asphalt, setting forth from Boston, heading west, the best direction of all, towards the fire of the sunset, the lure of the Pacific, the west coast of the Americas, a dream dreamed by millions, sucked into the unknown with their horses and wagons or acting aspirations and hopes. And now me, in a borrowed Honda, on the long road home, on this endless asphalt trail from sea to sea. With Paul Simon on the radio in Hartford, sitting in his railway station with his ticket for his destination, and I felt lonely in New York State, ducking and diving through the rolling hills of the east, hunched over the wheel, worrying about money and chicks and future things in no particular order. With the bald trees budding as they always have, awake from the winter and anticipating the sun, and to me, now, all the beauty in the world lies in the charm of a Pennsylvania farm, with a red and white barn and house on their clearing in the trees, with a lake speared by a small wooden pier, to dive off and spook the ducks, who now rest beneath this April sun, which dodges families of clouds before fading behind the low, rippling gray of a storm, the sky looking like sand after the tide recedes, its texture curious. Random, eclectic drops of Appalachian rain, and then a burst, and it clears. The air fresh and cool, spring-like in its scent. I feel like a slug spewing gook from my head, creating a path only for me and the screaming trucks to slide along all the way to the western sea. With the other cars intruding unwelcome in my poem, each time they pass, or I pass, and the stern faces of the semis reflecting my thoughts, as lonely as a crow chewing roadkill. I counted the phallic silos with their vaginal barns for ten miles before for boring of it, and thinking instead of my wonder bread, skippy peanut butter, and strawberry jam in a bag on the floor, as I sweep across the Jefferson County line, wherever that is, but it sounds good, over bridges looking down at American towns with their church and high school football games. But before long, my eyes grow heavy from studying the uneven horizon ahead towards the Great Plains. But I'm sure that I'd drive their expanse three times over if you promised me the mountains would rise on the other side to touch the big sky, and I'd blow all my cash again and again to see that and live it and feel all the rhythms of the American roads as though they are my own, which they are today. The morning brought the sun to me clear and bright, no longer hidden by storms on the edge of the plains. The number of farms increasing, the land smoothing out, calming down after the rage of the Appalachians, which were once greater than the Himalayas, I think I read somewhere, but I don't care. Chicago brought on congestion and great radio, beneath the bright sun tanning just my left arm, for I'd have to drive back to Boston to tan the other, but instead I fly on, to the swollen Mississippi her tributaries flooding homes and farms with rich water, and soon Iowa welcomes you, and that means me. For all time, I'll remember Iowa for having the best selection of roadkill in America, and I'm bored enough sometimes to slow down for closer looks. And for its fields of stubbled corn, rough like the beard of a drunkard, and for being the place where I realized that the East 
had completely slipped away behind me, and my life was an integral part of the sky. Freckled with occasional clouds and the sun and the vastness, there were scratches on its surface from the plains that whiz around far above, and I ate my Oreos, whizzing myself through the land of gun racks and cowboy boots to see a western sunset at Omaha last four days. I skirted up the eastern flank of Nebraska, with the Missouri River pacing me, and across South Dakota, beneath a broken bridge, past a buffalo ridge, smelling familiar things like skunk and manure, breathing deeply to make them a part of me again, marveling at each lone barn or house on a hill, wanting to inhabit each and every one, tiring of pathetic billboards and AM radio talk shows droning on and on and on, and I race to see Mount Rushmore by dusk, but miss it and drive faster in irritation, to slip into Wyoming and spend a restless night in a Holiday Inn parking lot with an upset stomach and an urge to see the damned Pacific. And there they are, the Rockies in the dawn, just like you promised, just like I dreamed, even though we both knew. Rocketing up, covered with snow and light, they let me pass in reverence, dropping me gently into western Washington. And now I lay within striking distance of Vancouver by midnight, through striking farmlands and a narrow mountain valley, in an impossible rain, at an impossible speed, for I am needing to arrive hurting, choking to arrive, and the border loomed quickly at 100 miles an hour, and soon the world clicked into place. And I knew it then, that the road home should always be a lonely task. Wow, I can feel that road, man, 30 years later. Damn. There are exceptions to the journey being the thing. I was living in Fiji. The departure was amazing. I went down to the Royal Suva Yacht Club to find a ride. I spent three weeks on a sailboat with a nudist German couple sailing to New Zealand on a flat-as-a-pancake Pacific Ocean. That journey was cool for the first three days. Then it got rather mundane. They were super nice people, but damn, sighting land was a joy. Although I had the best all-over tan of my entire life. So there's that. But if I'm talking about the journey, I can't forget Vladimir with whom I shared a train compartment from Moscow to Tashkent. He was a short, wiry fellow, with the hair the color of grain, tinged with gray. He was a 45-year-old engineer, a rather generic occupation in the Soviet Union. I had met scores of people who introduced themselves the same way. His posture was proper and acute. He sat straight-backed with knees together as we waited for the train to move. Just the way his things were already neatly put away in the compartment when I got there, toiletries carefully arranged on the tiny shelf above him, a pair of slippers sitting expectantly at a right angle to the bottom of the bunk. In these idiosyncrasies, he was different from most Russian men I had met on Soviet trains. It was a 55-hour journey, but on the second day, camels began appearing on the landscape in the latter half of the day. They were rarely in motion, standing idle on the plains and looking like plastic animals I positioned around the living room when I was little. Many had blankets with two holes cut to go over the humps, perhaps for identification. If one owned a camel, I wondered, how would one find it if one wanted to? There were few fences, and most of the time hardly any sign of habitation for miles and miles. There were increasing patches of sand on the plains as the land slipped vaguely, quietly, into the desert. It was somehow comforting to know that at the end of the desert, the Tian Shan mountain range roared up out of the earth. The land was silent, but I could sense that it was itching to rise to meet the mountains even there, a thousand miles away. The sun was falling to earth and changing the colors in the sky as it did so. The train obliged us by heading south, and Vladimir and I 
stood in the corridor facing west to watch the spectacle. It was a satisfying moment, feeling the train rocking gently back and forth and standing next to a good friend watching the sunset on the Kazakhstan steppes. That evening, the two of us would delve deeply into the vodka and wax emotional, talking about anything and everything, but for the moment, we stood silent. Clouds, thin and high, but with some weight to them, hung in the western sky. The swirling outline of the sun stared like an impossibly big and orange eye when it passed behind a cloud. The double pane of glass duplicated it, as though we were on some distant planet with two suns. And we just stood there, watching. In awe, really. The glowing dusty pinks and oranges sweep from vibrancy to dilution and slowly fade. The entire train was watching too. Low settlements passed, and outside of one, a man sat atop his camel with the sun to his right and the train to his left, and I could tell he was torn between which one to watch. It was a magical moment. Vladimir could do nothing but shake his head incredulously. When the velvet night sky edged closer to the far horizon, laying silhouettes across the land in the last moment of twilight, the short Cossack and I moved back into our compartment with a sigh. I think we could have very well been exhausted. He took my dog-eared Russian-English dictionary in hand and spent a few minutes looking up words. He marked each one with a bit of paper, and when he had found all he was looking for, he rechecked the order in which he would present them, mouthing each word in practice. And he was clearly going to make a presentation. When he was ready, he made sure he had my complete attention. He cleared his throat. He carefully, passionately pronounced four simple words. Beautiful. Time. Road. We. I smiled. Tears even welled. For then I knew he knew. He knew that subtle rhythm of the road. That life essence of travel and the magic it brings. We depart in the hope of arriving or not arriving at all. But the journey, man, the journey is the thing. Beautiful. Time. Road. We. You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Kobel-Anderson. Thanks for being out there. <laughs>